If you would open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. So again, men, don't forget, if you are interested in the study that Steve mentioned, please just tell him you're interested. And let him know if you prefer to meet on a Friday or Saturday. I would vote for Saturday and breakfast, but uh, it doesn't have to be that. But um, just let him know, and then uh, we'll make plans, and you'll hear about them, and we'll go from there. I've not read that book. Uh, sounds good. I'm looking forward to it. Who has? Gordon. Okay. Well, we know who to blame then. So, uh, <laughs> so anyway, let's pray and we'll get busy. Father, again, we are grateful for this opportunity to worship you together this morning. And Father, as we have gathered together, everything we've done here, Lord, we've done to honor you and to give you the reverence that, that you so rightly deserve. We, we've gathered here and we have, we have sung praises to your name, singing about you and your grace. Father, we have come before you confessing our sins and, and asking for your help. Father, we've also given of our tithes and offerings so that, Lord, we may be a part of the work that you do here and abroad. And we ask for your blessing on the gifts as well as those who give. And then, Father, during this time of the service where our focus and attention is on the word and in particular father this morning in the book of matthew and father we ask that you will speak to our minds and to our hearts through your word we pray lord that your spirit would not only continue to give us understanding but lord that you would transform our lives to become more like your son christ and so lord we thank you lord for all that is happening here this morning and ask lord that as we continue that you will be honored as we seek lord to be encouraged and strengthened by your word and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountains. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So when you read through the book of Matthew, many have noted that the book of Matthew is structured around five major discourses. In other words, these five main messages that Jesus gave. And that is kind of like, I guess, would form the main outline of the book. This sermon would be the first of those. Even though Jesus is preaching to the crowds, it seems that the sermon was directed primarily to his disciples. So it's not primarily an evangelistic sermon. It is geared really more towards discipleship. Jesus is describing the righteous uh, that should characterize the follower of Jesus. So one side note, so when you, when you, when you go through this, when he says, blessed are the poor, it's not like there's one group of individuals that are poor in spirit, and then another group of individuals, another group of individuals who mourn, and then another group that are meek. The idea is that all of these things that he's mentioning, that is the character of the believer of the one who follows God. This is what, what we should be like. This is what we are like in one sense. This is how God views us as how we should be. And so when we, when we read through this, again, this is not some message that was for them and not for us. We don't discount this. Uh, but he's clearly communicating to them. He is explaining to them, I believe, uh, helping them to understand in more, much more clear terms what it is that God desires from his relationship with men what all this is about. 
And these are the things that God recognizes, the things that God loves, the things that God wants us to be. When it comes to the word blessed, some have said that the word translated blessed could be or should be translated as happy. Some might even say that maybe the word fortunate is more helpful. So happy are those who develop the characteristics described here by Jesus. So if we're going to use the word happy, it's not giddy. It's not that kind of happiness. But there is this idea of really being happy. Some have a hard time with it. They think that the word is more closely associated with joy and that the spiritual meaning goes beyond modern views of happiness. Well, it does go beyond the modern views of happiness. But we shouldn't be afraid of the word happy. Um, because, again, this is not... We don't want to portray Christianity, again, as being this stoic, emotionless type of relationship that we have with God. And we're always, in a sense, somber. And it, it, we're not even sure if we're allowed to smile. But we can smile and we can laugh. That's what God wants from us. He wants there to be very deep joy that's expressed in many ways. So what he's talking about here is, is it's not a... Because if, if we have that view, I guess, we could almost view this as being negative. You know, that the, the mourning and being poor in spirit, that, it's a, that somehow it's, it's, a, it's a sad thing. It, that's not what it is. It's, it's not a sad thing. Right? It, it's a very happy thing in this sense. Think of it this way. Daryl Bach uh, said this. He says, The term blessed refers to one who is the object of grace and is happy because of it. However, those who are blessed do not face an easy life. Jesus mentions poverty and deprivation, which reflects the reality that many early Christians were poor. In addition to their commitment to Jesus, in addition, their commitment to Jesus led to their being, them being persecuted like the prophets of old. So this is not then necessarily the secret to happiness that if you're meek and you mourn, you're going to be happy. No, this is the individual who is happy. You're already happy because of the you're the object of God's grace, and this is in reflected in your attitude and in your life. So this is not, again, a secret to being happy. Uh, the secret to being happy is being rightly related to God. That's what that is, and we want to make sure we remember that. Many have pointed this out, that this sermon seems to be very closely related to Isaiah 61. So turn to Isaiah 61. I'm going to read it, um, and I think as you just... just Hear it being read or follow along, you will, you will recognize a lot of very similar terminology. And again, I would kind of agree with this because, again, there's this great continuity between the Old and New Testament. Jesus was not coming along and giving them something brand new. It was new in that some of these things they hadn't thought of before or heard of, but it's not without being grounded in what God has really already said. And he's just making it much more clear to us. So Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 1, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress, instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities. 
the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priest of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring of the Lord, the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So that's just a great psalm. And, when you th- and as you read through that and think about what Jesus is talking about in here in beginning in Matthew 5, we can begin to see this correlation. Arnold Frutenbaum says this about Isaiah 61 and Matthew 5. He says about Isaiah, So the poor, the mourners, the meek, the brokenhearted, those who rejoice, they're all mentioned. In addition to the idea of righteousness, it's prevalent. If the promises of Isaiah 61 are indeed at work, then the figure portrayed in this chapter must also be present. This is the one upon whom the Spirit of the Lord, Jehovah, is on. And we see that again in verse 1. And so all of that then is included. Because remember that these promises or this, this great state um, that, it, that it describes these believers, all that takes place because of the presence of this individual. right? And that is obviously Jesus Christ himself. So what is the point of all of this? Well, looking at Matthew, it's this. The sermon begins with a timed announcement and assurance. Blessings will come no matter how difficult things become for those who are allied allied with God. Why? Because the agent who brings God's blessings and promises has come and assures those who follow him that God will accept their alliance with God and his ways. So again, the idea is we're not focusing on circumstances. We're not looking at all the trouble around us. We're not denying that it's happening, but we are happy. We are blessed. We are fortunate because of this relationship we have with Christ. And these things that he mentions are true of us, but is also the character that God is looking for, those who are rightly allied or related to him. And that is us. So the, the Beatitudes as a whole can be divided into two categories, those in relation to God and those in relation to man. You see this division with the, if we look at the Ten Commandments. We have those that speak primarily of, of our relationship with God and then man to man. So we're dealing with man's relationship to God first. So verse 3 says, Blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit is the opposite of being prideful. All right? Being poor in spirit is the opposite of being prideful. This is where you're you are taking no confidence in your own spirituality. That, that, that's what's going on here. You have a, a proper view of, of yourself. 
There's, there's no pride. That's why when we talk about our salvation, there's no bragging in that. We're, we're grateful, but we're not, there's no bragging because we didn't attain it. We didn't earn it. We've just received this gift. Um, it actually points, if there's any, any boastfulness going on, it would point to the one who's given it to us. Kids get a great Christmas present. You know, hopefully you're not thinking, wow, you must have really earned that. They didn't go buy it. That was given to them. It, it may reveal, or hopefully it reveals, the, uh, the greatness of their parents or the love their parents have for them. That's kind of the idea um, that's behind that. It means that you have a right and a proper evaluation of yourself with respect to God. And again, that's really very important. We, we live in a day and age where people are, are, I guess, terrified of admitting that they're weak and that they are incapable of many things. Our pride won't let us go there. You know, we, we say, oh, no, you don't, you don't engage in negative self-talk. Well, that's not what that is. That's just basically recognizing the truth. I, I have a proper evaluation. I am spiritually dead before I come to Christ. There is nothing in me that's good. I'm not, I'm not walking around with my head down saying, oh, I'm just a worm. I'm no good. I'm still a being created in the image of God. But that image is marred by my sin. So there's, there's really nothing good to point to. At all. And that, so I have a, a proper evaluation. So we don't have to be afraid of that. We're not, we're not living in negativity. We're living in the light of reality. And that's what Christianity is all about. It's about that. And there's no fear with that. It is to recognize that man, which includes us, has no righteousness of his own and is utterly dependent on the righteousness of God for mercy. Some people have a hard time with this concept when we talk about the fact that there was nothing good in anyone. That there was no one who does good. And we go, oh, no, no, we want to push back. Oh, no, 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 no. I know people. And I know people who are good. So let's just define what we mean by good. All right, so yes, there are people who are relatively good. Maybe they're good when we compare them to you. All right, but the idea of good here is that I am incapable of doing good to a degree that God now owes me because of the good I've done. I'm not earning anything from God because of the good that I, I have. I am unable to do anything. That's, in fact, as an unbeliever, we say this often, at least we should think it, and that is a non-believer sins 24 hours a day. People go, oh, that's so negative. Amen. Why would you say that? Well, because it's true. Remember that every breath you take as an unbeliever is a breath taken in rebellion to God. That doesn't mean that you're carrying a placard saying, I hate God. But you are a God-hater because it's a refusal to acknowledge that the one true God exists is rebellion. Romans 1 makes that clear. Remember, we've said this before, and I believe it's true. Technically, maybe we could say this literally or actually, there is no such thing as a true atheist. That person cannot exist because God has said everyone knows God exists. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm going to believe what God says over what someone else says. Now, the person may not want to acknowledge God. Well, of course that's true. In fact, Romans tells us again, right? Man wants to what? Suppress the truth. He has his natural tendency to suppress the truth and righteousness. He doesn't want to deal with that. And so that's why maybe the term agnostic is probably the best term. And that's an individual who says, well, I don't really know. 
But again, even with that, we have to be honest to say that maybe the person's being intellectually dishonest. Because what you're kind of saying is God may or may not exist. But given who the nature of what God should be, then why would you be unaffected by the fact that he might exist? You should be deeply affected because he determines where you go. He determines what happens in this life and in the life to come. So there's much more associated with those terms than sometimes we think. But when we go according to the truth of the word of God, it reveals to us what we are really like on the inside, what's really going on. And so that's, that's the problems that we sometimes have with this. So we want to recognize that man has no righteousness of his own. Not, there's not enough righteousness to get us into heaven or to get us to, to overcome or make up for our sins. There's none of that. We are utterly dependent on the righteousness of God for mercy because he is a righteous God because he is good and loving. I'm dependent upon that to get me into heaven. These are the ones who will enter the messianic kingdom. So I am poor in spirit. I recognize my absolute dependency upon the righteousness of God. And I am blessed because I recognize that and I understand that because God has revealed that to me. And because I am the, I am the recipient of his grace, I am happy with this truth about myself because I know I am entering into the kingdom of heaven. I know that. So I, that's why I'm happy. I, I, am, I am a blessed, fortunate man because of that. Verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So here to mourn, and you can read tons of commentaries, we're all going to be in agreement on this, that basically this is not just an individual who's just sad. You're not just mourning because maybe someone died. The mourning here is a mourning because you have a sensitivity to sin. And that would be a sensitivity to your sin. Right? We, all, we all may have a sensitivity to the sins of others, but this is where you have a sensitivity to your sin. Those who possess this sensitivity will naturally confess their sins to God as soon as they become aware of them, and they will be comforted. One, one of the things that we do when we confess our sins, you know, when Steve came up here and he said, let's pray, and you notice his whole prayer was about basically seeking the Lord and, and confessing our sins. We're not doing that because we think we're worms. We are really doing that from a heart of gratefulness. We are, we, are, we are becoming sensitive or more sensitive to our sin. We want to be more sensitive to our sin. We want to confess this to the Lord because we want him to continue purifying us. He has purified us completely in our position before God, so I'm completely saved. But I know that in my day-to-day -day life, I am not as pure and holy as I should be, but I want to be transformed. And part of that process is me acknowledging my sin and confessing it to the Lord as we then move together forward. That's kind of the idea that's all wrapped up into that. So we want to mourn for our sin. Now, sometimes what will happen with this, and I think I've mentioned this before, is, again, it's not always a where you walk around weeping and all of that. But, you know, as I've grown in the Lord, there have been moments in my life where I suddenly have a flash of a memory from the past. And sometimes, you know, like you hear a song on the radio and you suddenly, you know, remember some small segment of high school that was maybe wonderful or whatever. That's fine. We have all kinds of memories. But there are times where I have a memory of something that I did or said to somebody that was not good. And there have been times, you know, when that took place, whether I was a teenager or what have you, I just, I never thought much about it. I can acknowledge intellectually, yeah, that was, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. But then there are times 
when I look back and I, and I, I loathe myself. All right? It's not that I can't believe I did that. I know I did it. I, I fully understood that. I hate that I did it. I wish that I could somehow go back and just not do that, whatever it was. And, and I can't. To me, that's part of that process of mourning over sin. You know, I'm, it now bothers me more than ever. Not only that I did it in the past, that I think is hopefully helpful in, in changing me so that I will not be prone or as prone to do that again in the future. Whether I'm just treating someone rudely or maybe I was just dismissive of the individual or maybe I was um, overly sarcastic and putting them down, you know, those kinds of things. You know, I, there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on when I was a kid. It was just, and I hate that. And so part, that's part of that. I don't want to, you know, I'm not, it's not a sin to be sarcastic, but it can be. You, know, you, can, you can kind of go way too far with that or with the wrong, you know, people may not know you and you're sarcastic and they have no idea what you're doing. And so that can be very sinful. And so that mourning process is really very good. So I'm not walking around hanging my head and saying, oh, I'm just dirt. You know, I, I, what I did was wrong. Uh, and I know, again, I'm forgiven, but there's that sensitivity that's there. So again, that's what he's talking about in this sense. So these are the ones who experience the joy and happiness of forgiveness of sins. So again, I am happy as an individual as I mourn over my sin because I know I am forgiven. I don't deserve that forgiveness. I deserve to be slapped for some of those things I did. And God's not slapping me. I'm happy about that. I really am. You know, God, you know, that sometimes it used to be in cartoons where there'd be the individual, they're always walking around with there's a, a rain cloud over their head, wherever they go. We don't have to live that way. When we remember the past, it doesn't have to be this traumatic thing where you now have to go to therapy. You don't need that. Right? Sometimes we, we have a hard time dealing with our past and what we've done because th that goes against this image of ourselves that we want to portray or we want others to believe in. Now, all we need to do is you need to fully embrace what you were and then accept the fact that God has forgiven you completely. That's how you get over it. That's how you move on from the past. So the, the memory may linger, but that memory is mixed with great happiness. Not, you're not, you're, you're, there's, not, there's no self-condemnation. In fact, Romans says, there's now no, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So there's no fear in remembering or even confessing again the things you've done in the past that are wrong. I'm not worried that people will think that I'm a scumbag. Right? The idea is that, no, I, I'm happy because I'm forgiven by God. Happy is the one who mourns. The individual who's not mourning is the one who's not being transformed by the grace of Christ. Psalm 30, uh, 32, beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What a great song. Here we're able to come face to face with what we were and, and what we are. 
And he makes it very clear that sin is being dealt with very openly. Remember, when you and I confess our sin to God, remember, it's not a surprise to him. You're not giving him information he doesn't already know. Amen. He knows this is for our benefit. But we want to take the, the process to its completion. And the completion of this is we're not diminishing the wrong we've done. We're in no way saying it wasn't that big of a deal. We're not saying that. It is a big deal. In fact, it's such a big deal, the only way it can be dealt with is by being forgiven. Because it is, so, it is far beyond your ability to make up for that. You can't. You cannot, you know, we all know there's certain things maybe you've said in the past, you cannot take those words back. I think one of the worst things you can do, I, and I've, I've never said this, I've, I've heard it being said, and I wonder sometimes how people live with themselves, but I, I heard a mother one time, she was exasperated with her kids, you know, they just were not obeying her at all, it was in the grocery store, and one of the kids did something, and a very large number of canned goods came crashing down into the aisle. And she was already at her wit's end, and then she just whipped around, and she said, I wish you were never born. Now I know she said that in the midst of her anger. Maybe she didn't mean those words, but she did mean to hurt him. She meant to do that. And all I know is, so how do you make up for that? You buy him a toy? You think that makes up for that? I mean, they'll be happy at that moment, but that doesn't make up for that. If they remember that, and that, and that lingers in their head. How do you make up for that? What kind of psychological damage can that do? You know, now they've got even more. Th it's a bad, there's enough in the world to overcome. And now you've got to overcome that. And often, when those words come out in one sense so easily, that means words like that and phrases similar have come out before. So it's not a one-time event. It's bad enough if it was a one-time event. So that kind of rejection and betrayal is unbelievably difficult for some to get over, especially in the psychological age we live in now where we dwell on that kind of stuff all the time. It's almost, in, in a sense, impossible to move on. Some want to use that as an excuse, which is not an excuse for the wrong that you do. But in the end, remember, you, you cannot make up for that. And there's many things that you and I have done in the past. We can't make up for it. If it that's why in marriage, you know why a marriage will, uh, anyone who's been married for more than a few years, the only reason your marriage, if you're a Christian, is going forward is because of forgiveness. I mean, it, that's the only way. In fact, if there's been no forgiveness and it appears that there's been forgiveness, that means it's kind of like hiding the axe, waiting for the last straw, and then you start swinging. That's not what a good marriage is. Right? The idea is that, that you know, there's ability to grow in love with the individual who's hurt you. That's what marriage is, right? Who can hurt you the deepest besides your spouse? That is the person who can hurt you the deepest. Do they? Yeah, it does. It happens. It's very unfortunate, but it happens. And because of forgiveness, we're able to move forward and actually continue to grow in love. That's incredible. And so remember, the, the Bible makes it clear that we are those who are guilty of what? In a sense, spitting in God's face. While we were actively sinning against him, he sent Christ to die for us. That's 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 incredible. Jesus was asking God to forgive that these men that are pounding the nails into his hands and feet, God, Jesus said they don't even know what they're doing, forgive them. I don't know about you, but I'm not thinking that way. I don't care why they're doing what they're doing. If they're doing that to me, I don't want you to forgive them. I'm going to blast these guys. You know, that's, I, want, I want them to suffer. So, you know, this whole thing here is really incredible that he's describing to us as individuals and to what he's describing to his disciples and what he wants us to know.
Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So here again, as Paul writes, you know, he talks about, he had to, he had to kind of call them on the carpet, so to speak, in another letter. And he's saying he was happy that they were grieving. But he wasn't happy just because they were sad. He wasn't happy because, yeah, I, I got you guys. <laughs> you guys suffered for a while because I really laid it on you. It's not what he's doing. He is really happy, though, that they were grieving because it led to repentance. And that's what, that's what he wanted from them. That's what he wanted to see. He wanted to see progress in their lives as Christians, as a church. And the fact that they were grieving over their sins was a wonderful thing. It, you know, it wasn't where you know, he was just putting them down and we have, again, all this negativity. He was dealing with negative truth but that led into the positive things of what God is doing for them and through them. Verse 5 of Matthew says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness means to have a quiet confidence in God. It is recognition and submission to God's authority. All right, so again, it's not just confidence. It's, it's these things all together. You are recognizing God's authority. And then what proves that you recognize God's authority is you submit to what God says. Those who live a life of submission to God's authority will someday be given authority in the Messianic kingdom. So what this is is a humble waiting on God. It will, it's going to work out. I'm not worried about it. It, it doesn't, it, 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 if someone's mistreating you and you, and you and you have a financial loss, that having confidence in God doesn't mean that money's coming your way. The money may never come back your way. That's not the point. The point is, is that you humbly are waiting on God to rectify that situation. Remember this, that if that individual becomes a believer, and they don't even remember they ripped you off, but they become a believer. God has rectified that situation because that sin they committed to you did not go unpunished because God punished Christ for that. So we need to make sure that we're not overly selfish with this. Like, I want to see them suffer. I, I want to take vent. No, 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 no. I, I want God to rectify this. And if they become believers in Jesus Christ, Remember, it never means they get away with it. That's how the world views it. But remember, there's no such thing as getting away with it if the sin is punished. And it was truly punished in Christ. And what that should remind us of, and the reason why we can rejoice in that, is because God is not exacting from me what I owe for the sins I've committed. We forget that sometimes. We're so caught up on what they've done to us and we want to see somehow we want them to suffer because of what they did to us. We tend to forget that maybe there's a group of others out there wishing that they could see us paying for what we've done to them. But that sin was punished in Christ. And so once again, it comes back really to the gospel and to the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ and how that is primary. That is not some minor thing. That's central to all of this. Let me read to you from Psalm 37, beginning in verse 10. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek, that's those who are humbly waiting on God, shall inherit the land 
and delight themselves in abundant peace. Now, there's something that's interesting about Psalm 37. In this psalm, there is a focus on the righteous and the wicked and their different ends. And what is notable in the 37th Psalm is there's a real heavy emphasis on land or on earth. The land will be given to those who trust in God. Variously referred to, there are those who wait on Jehovah. He talks about the meek, the upright, the blessed, the righteous. It doesn't matter how you translate the Hebrew word, which is Eretz, E-R-E-T-Z, whether you translate that word as land or earth. The main thing is to see is that the hope of the believer is rewarded with land. Psalm 37, 39 says, The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Now, I don't believe that's just a metaphor. Right? Some say, well, it's a metaphor for peace and safety. Well, okay. But I don't think it's just that. How are these people hearing this? You, you're getting a place. You're, you're, you're inheriting land. It is this idea that the land is yours so that you're not in danger of beasts or enemies, whatever. As, we, as you live the land, work the land, you know, there's a place you belong. It's a place that is, it's, it's, it's a place of happiness and joy. And you're going to receive this. You're not worried about it being taken away from you. So it created a lot of pictures in their mind, a lot of comfort that is here. We're going to live forever with God on the, in the new heaven and in the new earth. The earth will belong to us. It's given to us. There are no enemies. There are no predators. You know, there's a place that we belong and, and there's an incredible sense of peace and safety that comes along with that. Again, in Isaiah 61, it reads this way, The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of, the day of vengeance for our God to comfort all who mourn. And then jump down to verse 7. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. So last one, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So again, we're not saying this. This is not a command for you to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy is the one you possess this. You possess this if you are a believer because God has come into your life and is transforming you. Now, we don't consistently have a hunger and thirst for righteousness, but it pops up every now and then, and hopefully it grows a lot more because we are united to Christ. But the non-believer never has this. A non-believer never has a thirst for righteousness. They have a thirst for righteousness how it applies to them. I want you to be righteous so I can receive good things from you. That's kind of how that works. But they don't have a thirst or a hunger for righteousness. And they're not going to be satisfied either. Righteousness means to live in accordance with the absolute standard, which would be the word of God. In the context of this sermon, I believe that what they're hearing Jesus say is this, that standard is the law of Moses. That's God's standard. Happy are those who live consistently with the absolute standard. There was the belief that law did not represent negativity. That this was God's plan for you. This is how you should live. It's for your good so you will flourish. Don't we do that in our homes? I don't know, we had four kids. So we had, there were unwritten laws about what we did at dinner time. But we did that so everybody could flourish and eat. It was not every man for himself. That wouldn't work out real well. 
right? There had to be this mutual cooperation. So whatever laws we had, we had, you know, that were, they were unwritten, but we basically had laws or rules, but that was so that we all could flourish. And so that's how the law of Moses was being viewed, was so that everyone could flourish. Of course, there's the do's and don'ts, because man has a sinful heart, a sinful nature. That, that has to be curtailed. Here's the, here's the command of God. Don't do those things. Why? You do those things, everyone's not going to flourish. Like we want everyone to flourish. And so this righteousness here are those who are consistently living in, uh, according to the standard. This is not those who hunger for social righteousness. This is not those who are, who are looking for some social cause. God, Jesus is speaking to these individuals. Now, yes, we, we should be concerned if we don't have an ongoing or a growing sense of hunger and thirsting for righteousness. We should have a concern. We, we, we should pray for ourselves and for others that our appetite for that would increase. There's an expectation for the believer that, again, there'll be a growing hunger for righteousness, a growing hunger to, to know the Word of God. It doesn't mean that, you know, you pray for yourself and tomorrow you're going to start reading the Bible for four hours a day. That may not happen. But there's this idea that you do, you want to hear the Word of God. You're going to find yourself, I, I want to read the Word of God. I want to know that. I, I'm hungry for there to be this righteousness in my life. And I want it in the lives of others, but I want this in my life. I want, I want to be living out, living in the wisdom that God has in his word. I want my life to flourish spiritually. Because if my life is flourishing spiritually, I'll have a better marriage because I'm going to be better. I'll be a better father because I am better. I'll be a better employee or employer, whatever the words are, because I am better. And, and, and I want to have that joy. I want to have that happiness. So I'm already happy as an individual who is thirsting for righteousness and, and hungry for this. And he tells me I'm going to be satisfied. I want that to be satisfied in my life. So this description about what we are in God, what, what God is doing in us, is what, what Jesus is explaining to these individuals. And, and their whole life, all they've heard is maybe an outward conforming to the law. This idea of this relationship with God that brings about these internal changes and attitudes that we have that, that encompass all of life. Some of them were, had gotten it, but most hadn't. And Jesus is making it very clear to them. When it comes to you and I, again, we want to make sure we remember this. Being a Christian is not just an add-on to your life. It's, again, it's not a phone app. It's not something where you just mark your calendar. I now know what I'm doing 52 days of the year. Every Sunday I'm going to go to church. That's, that's a good thing. But, and for some, that's what Christianity means. It means I now have a regular activity on the weekend. That's not what that is. It's affect every aspect of life. It's not, so it's not a phone app. And so if, if your Christianity, if, if your life as a Christian has become that, where when you, th when you think honestly about your life and this very literal relationship between what you know and believe about Christ and your everyday living, not only is that a, a major disconnect, you're the one suffering as well as others. If you want to flourish, you want to, to activate, you want the Spirit of God to activate His Spirit within you and, and move in the direction that God wants you to. And God will bring that about. That's that's what he's in the business of doing. He's begun the good work in you, and he's going to complete that. 
For some, you, you may have been just playing the part. You, you have this activity on weekends. You come to church. It's a, it's a good thing. And it's a good thing. But you're not really listening. You're not really thinking about anything. You're just kind of going through the motions. That, that can be, that's very detrimental to your life. Remember, and we'll get to it soon, where Jesus is looking at some individuals who are extremely religious. And he judges them and he says, I don't even know who you are. Leave. And remember, they're crying out, whoa, 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 whoa. We did, and they mentioned the things they did for Christ in his name. And the Greek, and you'll hear me say it again, I'm going to say it now. The Greek's very emphatic, because he says, not only does he, does he say for you to depart, he says, I have never at any time known you. Man, that, I don't know about you, that is not what you want to hear. You want, more important than you and I knowing Christ is him knowing us. That's what's important. And that's what you need to have in your life. And so if you are unsure about those things, not only should you begin reading the Gospel of John once again, if you have any questions about that, you can talk to me, text me, email me. You can even use instant message on Facebook. You can even come to my office and talk face-to-face. If you want, we can go somewhere and eat and talk to face-to-face. It doesn't matter. But you can do that with Tom. You can do that with Steve. You can do that with, actually, quite a few people. John will do, take you out. Oh, there's a lot of us who'd be willing to do that because we want you to know the gospel. We want you to know how you can know God and have and possess these things. We want you to be like us. I am a happy man. I am not happy because I've been married for 46 years. There's happiness in that. But that's not why I'm happy. All right? I am not happy because I just have four great children. There's happiness in that. I am not just happy because I have 11 grandchildren. All those things make me happy. I am happy because of what Christ has done in my life. And because he has secured for me where I am going. And I know for a fact I'm going to be there. And then there's just happiness piled on top of happiness. Because most of my family knows the Lord. We're going to be there with them. Many of you that I'm friends with, I know you're believers. I'm going to be there with you. I don't know if you'd be happy I'm there, but I'm going to be there with you. And that makes me happy. And it's a great thing. We, I don't know about you, but I like this happiness thing. And we, and we need to possess that and embrace that in this world of just slop that we live in. And then when people ask us why, how can you be so happy? The answer is really very simple. Explained in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would cause your word to often throughout the week into our minds and that we would think on it and dwell on it. I pray, Lord, for every believer here that they would experience and be cognizant of that happiness that we really possess. But I do pray, Father, that if there are those here who don't know Christ, I pray that you will not allow them to even have a moment of happiness. And if they do have it, help them to realize that it's pretty empty. Not, Lord, because we just want them to suffer. We don't want that. We do want them to understand and to see clearly the truth of Christ. Now, desperately, they need Christ.
So, Father, I pray that in your patience and kindness, you will draw them to yourself and you will convict them of their need of Jesus Christ. Father, we again, we just want to thank you, Lord, again for your word and for the ministry of your spirit in our lives. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.